30 seconds, reality as you know it will cease to exist. In its place, you will find a new dimension, identical to the one you've left behind, only slightly better. Take a deep breath and open your mind to the magic within you. This is no ordinary podcast. This podcast is with Richard. Games are a form of magic. Games take trinkets, tokens, and maps and assign them meaning. That pewter top hat represents me. The game's contract says when you land on a space occupied by a blue property, you pay me money. The paper money has value because we've agreed to pretend it has value. It represents value, but it's actually just paper, which is the same as real money. We create games to entertain ourselves. Children easily create imaginary games. When I was a kid, becoming a Ninja Turtle was as simple as walking up to another kid on the playground and saying, I'm Donatello, who are you? I don't know what games kids imagine now. Do they pretend to be Minecraft characters? YouTube streamers? Do they play games where they pretend to watch imaginary people play non-existent games? I don't actually know. But we all play games with ourselves. Not just Solitaire or Candy Crush, but motivational games. If I work for another hour, I can have a treat. If I do this every day, I create a streak. Some of us create systems to provide a little more satisfaction when we check a chore off a list. Others invent imaginary narratives, so they're actually a spy running top-secret missions. It just looks like they're dropping off McDonald's for DoorDash. When we create games... When we can not only read the rules, but rewrite them to suit our needs, games can be very good. They provide a framework for our natural human need for play. They create bubble universes where best friends can be bitter enemies, bits of yellow plastic are more valuable than gold, and all of life's chaos is streamlined into a simple, well-articulated goal. Win. But the larger game of capitalism has created a new kind of game. One where we're not players, or even people, but pieces. In his latest book, You've Been Played, games designer Adrian Hone examines the trend of gamification, which takes the familiar mechanics of games, points and missions, winners and losers, and applies them to everyday activities like work, school, hobbies, and even our health. From glossy gamified interfaces slapped over grueling gig economy work to well-meaning apps incessantly nagging you to study Spanish or get your daily steps in, every aspect of our lives is quickly becoming gamified. While the vendors pushing workplace gamification software claim their products make working fun, the reality is often more black mirror than backgammon. But Hone, having designed the popular gamified running app Zombies Run, knows that games don't need to be prisons. They can be liberating. Alternate reality games can help us collaborate with strangers to solve puzzles. Multiplayer games push us to think strategically. And most importantly, the best games are fun. Really and truly fun. So before we roll the dice on humanity's future with tokenized totalitarian surveillance systems masquerading as Mario Party, Let's flip the board and take back our power as players so, with Adrian's help, we can learn how to beat the game. Hello, Adrian. Hello. Welcome to Ritual Space. Uh, Glad to be here. Thank you. We're going to play a little game today called Record a Podcast. (laughs) Sounds great. What's our magic word going to be? Stella. Stella, like stellar, like stars, or yeah, like stars. Okay, got it. Stellar. One, two, three. Stellar. Stellar. All right. Why did that word come to mind? Um, you know, I've always liked uh, space and astronomy and things like that when I was a kid. Uh, you really used to being kind of space exploration and Mars and things like that. Yeah. 
It's interesting because um, I have your book right in front of me, and on the cover are little gold coins that have stars on them as well, which makes me think about the ways that stars are used for sort of ratings and tokens and uh, mm-hmm. as an element in games as well. Yeah, yeah. No, it's... um. I've never really thought that much about like why stars are used in that way. I guess it probably goes back to medals and and um, yeah. I, to be honest, I'm not really sure. Yeah, it's a cool symbol that you know yeah. easy to easy to draw. Uh, so let's talk about games, and I'm going to ask a very broad question at first. But um, how do you define a game? You know, I'm not a game scholar. I guess I would define it myself as as some kind of activity with rules and uh, where a person or, or multiple people are trying to overcome some kind of obstacle to get to a state that is uh, maybe artificially difficult to get to. Um, and they have choices. They have interesting choices they can make in order to to uh, get to that state, to win, if we want to put it that way. So there's a framework that kind of structures the behavior, and then there's uh, the sort of moves in the game, the things that, you know, in chess, you have specific moves that pieces can make, and you can't just say that your your queen is going to jump to the other side of the board. Right, and and there was this concept of the magic circle with games where when you step inside the magic circle of a game or... I mean, people would use the term as well for like theater. Um, you're meant to suspend the fact that you could just go and move your queen next anywhere on the board. And instead, you all agree to adhere to these rules um, in order to have an interesting time. Right. Wonderful. I like that I have that idea of agreement because I think that's something we'll come back to in mm. a little bit. Now, how would you define gamification? Well, gamification is where you take ideas and concepts uh from video games usually popular video games or or board games or that sort of thing uh and apply them to non-entertainment purposes um and so that means that's very broad i mean it could mean sort of trying to make learning a new language more fun it could be trying to uh you know get fit or trying to you know uh uh, learn the guitar. Yeah. Yeah, I'm in the throes of a Duolingo right now. So I'm aware <laughs> yeah. of all of those kind of tried and true gamification elements of there's leaderboards and I get points and I unlock things and all of that kind of creates structure, which even this morning I was thinking about like, oh, I'm, I'm kind of ready to stop doing Duolingo right <laughs> now, but I'm going to go a little bit further because I'm getting double XP and I want to go up the leaderboard. So it changed my motivation uh, even as recently as this morning. Yeah, Duolingo, I think, is is my one of my go-to examples now for something mm-hmm. that is very popular and mm-hmm. and something that where people have a pre-existing motivation um to to learn a new language, but also something where I think the gamification has really gone too far <laughs> um, in Duolingo. Uh and it is a very kind of pure kind of gamification in the sense mm-hmm. that it is uh quite um you know it, it, they they themselves call it gamification they know what they're doing yeah. um and and it's quite advanced but that doesn't necessarily mean it's a it's a good thing yeah and i think you know in in the book you talk repeatedly about sort of basic gamification where you can just slap a leaderboard and some point system on something versus the more in depth how do we take this activity and create the game out of it rather than layering on top of it. But I'm curious about uh, what do you think Duolingo is taking too far? Well, you know, I I think broadly speaking, the gamification, when uh, even generic gamification, basic gamification, when Mm -hmm. applied to certain activities, especially ones that people are already motivated to do, can be helpful, right? It is Mm -hmm. nice for people to see that they're making progress towards a goal. So for instance, if you have decided that your goal is to go and learn 500 words of, you know, Mandarin. It is nice to see like an achievement where you get to 50, yeah. you get to 100, that sort of thing. And I think that that is, it, you know, at its best, it's a way of demonstrating progress, right? And mm-hmm. in a video game, it, it's a way of sort of suggesting new ways to kind of learn things. So maybe it might say, hey, now you've used these 10 words in a particular kind of sentence. Here's a, an achievement. And that's, I think that's mm-hmm. generally nice. 
I think where it goes uh, too far uh, in, in Duolingo is where it is encouraging activities which the user probably would not have agreed with had they been asked about it to begin. And so that's a bit abstract, but I'll give you an example. I mean, you mentioned uh, double XP, <laughs> um, mm-hmm. which I'm learning about. And, um, you know, my partner's mom uh, is using Duolingo and mm-hmm. she will get these notifications uh, uh, in the evenings saying, mm-hmm. hey, it's XP happy hour. And right. if you go and solve, you know, if you're going to answer these vocabulary tests for the next hour, you will get double mm-hmm. XP. And, you know, these happen like during dinner when she's having conversations with her, her family, you know, when she's doing other things and she'll be like, well, got to go and do this thing instead now. And I really have to say, I just don't think that anyone would have agreed to that, really, uh, to be mm. interrupted, to have their sort mm-hmm. of like lives interrupted in that way. I don't think it, people would have said, this is like so important that, that I want to end up feeling compelled yeah. um, to do this because um, there are other ways, <laughs> you know, of of learning. And I think they probably would agree that that's not ideal. So that's an extreme example, but I think... You know, it's a pretty clear one. Yeah. Well, I think, and I think there's a couple of elements that are really important there. One is the idea of compulsion, where the game is compelling you to do something more or at a certain time or something that you wouldn't normally do. And the other one is that understanding and agreement. If you ask me to just run from one side of a soccer field to another, I'll probably go at a different pace than if you ask me to race somebody else from one side of the soccer field to another. And now I feel compelled to beat the opponent, especially if there's a prize. And if I'm agreeing to play a game like soccer, that's part of the fun. You know, there's yeah. there's a reason why more people like to play soccer than just ambiently run back and yeah. forth on a field with no purpose or direction. So is what you're talking about with Duolingo sort of um, almost the operating agreement or the contract that we get into when we sign up and not all of this is made clear? Well, I you know, I... I, I think that one of the advantages of game, one of the powers of gamification of video games mm. is that it, it can um, compel people into learning more than they really wanted to. And, right. and it can sort of like immerse people in an activity in a way that can be useful. I think the, the problem is when, uh, you know, the actions it's compelling users to take are ultimately more in the interests of the business, usually, right. you know, than in the user. I don't think it really benefits a user to have their dinner interrupted by XP Happer Hour, but I do know that it benefits a business um, for, for that to happen. Absolutely. I think that's one of the things that we're starting to peel back more and more in the world where when Facebook and social media platforms first came out, we're like, ah, this is a tool for us to use. And now we're starting to realize that some of these things have motivations which are not in our own interest. We're not posting because this is what we thought would be fun to post. We're posting because we think it'll get us more likes or retweets or the different point systems that uh, appear as notifications. Yeah, and you know, I think one of the things that is most uh, irritating to me is how this is of you know like often placed uh, on the user as mm-hmm. it's their responsibility to right. abstain from mm-hmm. from these things, which have been designed specifically to yeah. try and compel you, right? And I think that one of the problems that we have in this whole, you know, discussion of addiction and compulsion is that people, you know, often will say, well, come on, do you really think Facebook is addictive? You know, can't you just go and like stop using it? And it's like, there's a nuance in the sense that it is possible for uh, you know interactive experiences to really make people feel compelled to keep using them, even if they aren't like a physical drug or, or something like that. Mm-hmm. And you know we end up in this kind of binary situation where some people say, well, obviously, as soon as you start using Facebook, then you you become addicted. And other people saying, mm-hmm. well, it's just you're just a weak person and you should stop using Facebook. And the truth is, it's different for different people, and it's somewhere in between, but it certainly does work in aggregate. I I do think Mm -hmm. that. Well, and I think there's this asymmetricality where Mm. if you ask most people, hey, you're going to play a game, it's you as one player versus a team of 
30,000 people. Who are you going to bet on? Everyone's going to like, well, I'm, I feel like that's an unfair advantage. But if we're thinking about Facebook as a game where they're deciding how to structure this, how to build the virtual casino so people stay longer, engage more, and then I, the user, am supposed to outsmart teams of people who have gotten master's degrees in design and product right. management and engineering and are all working very hard at this problem, uh, that seems unfair in the same way that, you know, the casino is not a neutral environment where you can play a game of chance and then leave. It has architecture and no clocks and all of these other elements that keep you keep yeah, you off the table. For, precisely. It is designed to extract money from you. And, you know, it's kind of ridiculous to think otherwise. I think that um, you know, one of the yeah, one of the issues with this discussion though is that like it is possible for for one person or even the same person to be completely uninterested in Facebook or in Duolingo or whatever, and then ten years later suddenly get into it, or just mm-hmm. to never be interested. And I think yeah. you know, we're all different, you know, and we're all in different circumstances. And um, you know, even if I look at something like Duolingo and think, well, this this would never work on me. It certainly does work on other people. Yeah. I mean, even when I was growing up, I saw my brother and I had very different ways of playing video games where I would want to beat the sort of main thing. And once I got done with that, I was like, <laughs> okay, I've, I've beat the game. Whereas he would play it for another 100 plus hours to go unlock every little token, yeah. achievement, character, and kind of you have to beat the full game. So... Um, I'm curious because I think with gamification and this topic, there's you, you do such a good job in the book of saying you're not just anti this in general. There's good examples of it being thoughtful and helpful. There's a lot of examples of it being kind of dystopian and horrifying. Um, where did your interest in this topic come from? Well, um, hmm. I mean, I've always been interested in video games and mm. I've always been kind of amazed at how they can capture people's attention. Um, yeah. You know, when I was a kid, you know, you, you're talking about, you know, people playing games in different ways. I used to play Civilization a lot. Um, mm. And my my big favorite game was Civilization 2, although I played all of them. And I got to the point, like several years ago, where I realized I, I actually can't play this game anymore. Because if I mm. start playing it, I will not be able to stop playing it for the next six yeah. hours. And and that's not great. I mean, it is a great game, but that's not good for me, <laughs> ultimately. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um now, so, so that's kind of one part of it. The other part was, you know, I became a game designer um, professionally uh, when I was um, 21, 22. Um, I, I had been studying experimental psychology and neuroscience at university. And um, while I was doing that, I kind of started playing this game called The Beast, which was an alternate reality game. And I really got into that. I started making it, you know, started writing about it, started a, um, joined the games company to make an alternate reality game. Did that for a few years, then um, set up my own company, well, skip forward a few years, started making a game called Zombies Run. And Zombies mm-hmm. Run is gamification, basically. It's a way to gamify running, to gamify exercise, and to make it more fun. And, you know, it's been held up as this example of, you know, really good really successful, really popular gamification. But I uh, never liked the term because usually gamification is applied to describe things like Duolingo, um, which mm-hmm. I don't I don't think those are games. I think they're gamified and usually they're done yeah. in ways to kind of just, just make money um, at people's expense. And mm-hmm. so I started seeing it I didn't really like it, um, but I thought it would just go away of its own accord mm-hmm. because I thought, well, this stuff doesn't really work like in the long term and it's a bit yeah. of a fad and so I don't need to worry about it. But then I would say about four or five years ago, I just noticed it cropping up in more and more places, just really mm-hmm. unexpected places that I had not imagined. And people either thought it was um, either ignored it uh or or dismissed it um or said it was really good <laughs> and yeah. and i and i just had very strong opinions about this people would keep on asking me about them and i thought well i should go and write a book about it so that's that's what happened as you were writing this book um was there anything that really stood out that sort of surprised you or caught you off guard as you started to dig deeper into this subject um I think there's probably two things. Um, I mean, there's a million examples of gamification in the book. Mm-hmm. And 
some were very weird or funny or, or very um, bad <laughs> um, or very yeah. scary. I think that the the most surprising vote, um, example is the one that's used in schools, which probably has to be one of the most widespread forms of gamification in the world, and also one that very, very few people even seem to know about, um, which is this app called Class Dojo, um, which is used in supposedly 95% of US schools. Wow. And it is this sort of classroom management, behavior management app that kind of gamifies people's behavior, students' behavior in, in classrooms. And I was just kind of like a little bit in shock <laughs> learning about it. I was like, how did I not know about this? Uh, I, I thought I was like, you know, the expert. I just yeah. never heard of it before. I don't have kids, you know, and, and uh, even a lot of parents not really that familiar with the details of how this app works. And so that was one thing that really stood up to me. Yeah. Just how, I mean, because I think that is, that kind of sets the tone. Like we we've, you know, there's a story about why we have the education system we do, and then there's another story about how it's designed to make productive workers in an industrial economy. Yeah. And if you're setting people up to be used to gamification from day one, then now you have this entirely gamified pipeline of, I'm going to compete in the classroom with these sorts of things, and then what is the college process other than uh, sort of leaderboard yeah. and selection, and which level do you get to go to? And then you get into a workplace where... We've the workplace taken all of these nefarious things as yeah, monitoring, tracking, uh, like the the sort of efficiency and productivity, and then we've turned it around and said, "This is a fun thing for you. This is a gift we're giving you." Yeah, I mean, you know, that is the most um, th- that's the most incredible thing that gamification has done, which mm-hmm. it has um, by by taking the aesthetics of video games and board games of things that we like. Mm-hmm. And they give us a design to give us agency and they're designed to give us choice and be fun. And instead applying them to things which are ultimately designed to kind of manipulate or control. And I realize that sounds like super conspiracy theory, but that's that that is what the purpose of it is. Yeah. Um and, and you know, one can imagine ways to use this in good purposes, right? But um usually they're not, <laughs> I think, and or they're, they're not very effective. And because they use those kind of really happy, positive connotations from games, um, people just don't end up realizing or or don't end up opposing it in in a way that I think they would otherwise. And all of that is to say, you know, to give an example, there was this um, video that that came out uh, from an Amazon warehouse worker last year. And... Uh, you're not allowed to take videos or photos in Amazon warehouses, obviously. And so this was pretty interesting that it came out and it was a, uh, of one of the games they have in their fulfillment center. And so they have uh, a number of games there, which people can optionally play. And basically the way it works is that as you do your work, you know, packing boxes, stacking shelves, that sort of thing, Mm -hmm. uh, you progress in the game. And this game looked like a cross between Pokemon and Minecraft. And so by doing your job, you would go and collect and level up animals. Mm-hmm. Um, and this person in the video had this subtitle saying, um, like, uh, you know, when you want to leave Amazon, but you can't bear, you know, abandoning your virtual pets. Yeah. And um, so you can just think all the levels of what's happening there. But anyway in the comments of this video, like about half the people were like, wow, this looks really fun. Who knew that Amazon was like a fun place to work at? <laughs> you know, because they like, they see the game and they think, well, yeah. it looks like Minecraft and Minecraft is fun. So therefore, if there is something that looks like Minecraft at Amazon, then I'm going to have fun doing this game. And then the other half of the people, including people who'd played this game and worked there said, oh, you don't realize this is just designed to make you work harder and faster mm-hmm. and it's not for you it's for the company yes. and it it does that because it looks like a game even though it's not really a game but it, it's sort of gamified one of the things uh in the book that just kind of knocked me down and i i just found myself thinking about over and over again and bringing it up in conversation was um some quote from an amazon worker and they're talking about how this 
drive for efficiency where Amazon has all of this data so it can try and figure out how to make everything as streamlined and efficient as possible has taken away the normal slack of a human experience mm-hmm. of being able to you know have a general goal of I have to get 100 boxes done today and so I worked pretty hard in the morning and then I took lunch and I was kind of full after lunch so I was sluggish for a little bit and then I you know went to the bathroom and kind of freshened up and then I got back in a productive zone and I got my 100 boxes and like okay that felt good and you take away that by micromanaging everything down to how long are your bathroom breaks? And it sounded like what they were describing was a, just the psychological impact of that, of feeling yeah. like you're always rushing, you're always trying to operate at this high level. There's no ability or freedom to be able to pump the gas or brakes depending on your needs. And that sounded like it was causing the incredible burnout that Amazon sees, where, I mean, I've, I've read some reports that are in danger of running out of well, <laughs> fresh yeah. virgin employees <laughs> because they've churned through so many yeah, everyone has worked there now, so they know what it's like. And and some people, you know, do like it. I think that's true. But, you know, one of the things that, that I mean, Amazon and companies like it are, are really, you know, the perfection of Taylorism, or of this sort mm-hmm. of like a century-old quest to try and maximize, quote-unquote, efficiency in factories, in, in production lines. And it started, you know, 150 years, 130 years ago with... You know, people with stopwatches, you know, trying to like say, well, the fastest person can do this job in, you know, eight hours. So everyone else should also be able to do in eight hours if you copy what the fastest person does by, you know, Mm -hmm. copying their movements. Now, obviously, back then, you know, they didn't have video cameras, they didn't have all this other stuff, but they did have stopwatches and it was still pretty uh, annoying for the workers. I mean, I say pretty annoying, people rioted over it. Um, then, <laughs> then um, you know, and, and of course now, um, you know, Amazon and other companies are able to monitor your movements down to mm-hmm. the centimeter, down to the second within warehouses. So they can know exactly right. how fast you're moving. And um, that means there's no slack because they're like, well, we want to uh, maximize profits and maximize margin. And so we are going to pay you only for what we want to pay you for and and pay you for the output. And so, yeah. you know, and, 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 and I mean, none of that is gamification, right? You know, gamification is, is a layer on top of that where they realize um, it's pretty depressing, <laughs> you know, just to yeah. be told to, to make the number go up. And so they realize, oh, but, but we can, we can make people accept this more if it looks like a game. Um, right. which sounds it just sounds so depressing it sounds, it sounds kind of like are people really that stupid and it's like well you know people people um want to believe i think that that you know their employer uh cares about them and mm-hmm. um and they they're used uh to things like games that look like games are are fun and are good for them and maybe it takes them a while to realize that's maybe not the case well, and I think there's a very important distinction there between is a game and looks like a game. Yes. And if we we zoom out, capitalism is a game in a sense. There is the goal yeah. of producing as much profit for your shareholders. And as all of these other companies and organizations are playing against each other to be the one that gets the investment or maximizes profit for this quarter or whatever the various you know goals are, those break down into the directives that guide HR policy or recruitment or all of the various other things. So there's kind of a wider gamification. And I think you do such a good job of zooming out from time to time to talk about how your company is a smaller company that is able to have a human-focused approach to treating your employees well and giving them breaks and autonomy and the things that make it fun versus what I think we sort of saw where there was the window dressing of a fun tech company where there's a a foosball (laughs) table and there's a snack room and there's some of these things. But if those are just window dressing and the employees don't play foosball because they're all stressed about trying to meet the unrealistic deadline, then it's not actually what it was there for. It's just a decoration in the same way that the game is not fun because it looks like a cute animal. The game's fun because there's a mechanic that makes it rewarding and enjoyable. 
Well, exactly. I mean, you know, I remember at my first games company, um, mm. we had an office in the most boring office park in London. There was nothing mm. there. It, there was no foosball table. There was just, yeah. you know, desks. And it was very exciting because we got to make just an amazing game. And we had a lot mm. of freedom in doing that. And it was so cool. And um, I left the company and then and then the company moved to a new office with a slide and a ball pit and a foosball table and all this stuff. Mm. And, um, <laughs> you know newspapers would come to take photos of it and say wow look at this really creative you know uh workplace mm. and i was like yeah but we came up with all the ideas in the boring office you know that yeah. the, the, the the foosball table and the slide have nothing to do with the creativity um that mm -hmm. they're a lagging indicator of creativity where you get those after the creative moments and they're just there to to make people think this is like a fun company and um yeah, I, I always I, I also reminded of um, uh, some photos from the writers' room for The Simpsons back when you know it was at, mm. at its peak, and the writers' yeah. room for The Simpsons it's just I mean I I'm not sure it has any windows I think it's just I think it's just this like white cube with like a couple of <laughs> yeah. sofas you know it's really stuffy and and you're like how is this a creative environment it's not a creative environment and yet they made one of the most creative TV shows you know ever mm -hmm. and it's like well it. It, it's not that I'm saying that we should go and ban foosball tables. I'm just saying it has basically no correlation, you know, with actual creativity. But people want to believe that that is something that can be distilled and can be turned into a mechanism. You know, oh, let's buy two foosball tables. Creativity goes up by 5%, you know, because yeah. they just cannot comprehend you know, or grasp, you know, how, how it really does work, you know, and it can't be controlled in, in a traditional way. It, in a weird way, that reminds me of an epiphany I had um, playing Mario as a kid, where I was like, oh, the coins kind of don't really matter. Like, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> There's coins throughout, and I'll go out of my way to get more coins, but like, what is it? Like, if you get a certain amount of coins, you get an extra life or something, and it's like, I'm playing on a Super Nintendo, I can save, I, I don't need those lives. I'm not worried about a high score. There's no reason. Why am I going out of my way? And if it's fun and it lets you explore the level, then that's an enjoyable part of the game. But if I was playing Mario competitively, then I would have a strategy that would ignore the coins. And I think this is something that happens is I've seen at companies where there's a lot of fun initiatives and stuff that they bring out, but they're they're tangential to the core mission of what the company wants people to do. So they have short shelf lives because then the company kind of goes, actually, you know what? This doesn't really matter. And it's a distraction. Let's pull it back in. And so you see a lot of these sort of systems that don't fit the core goal kind of coming and going in a way that you start to see the pattern. I mean, it's just so much harder to create a company, to create any kind of organization that that gives people, that delivers people satisfaction, you know, and happiness and agency mm -hmm. than it is to go and buy a foosball table, you know, or, or right. to, go and, <laughs> to, to go and do like, a, you know, a pub quiz or whatever. And so, yeah. and, and I think that it's, I mean, I mean, I don't, underestimate how difficult it is to make an organization mm. like that i mean you know you mentioned you know our company is trying to do that i i think we're not bad but i don't think we're perfect i mean we we mm -hmm. still have to make money and it and it's always yeah. difficult trying to trying to you know strike that balance but yeah exactly i mean it's you know i i think that one of the things that distinguishes a good game from gamification is if you remove all the points and the coins, you know, and mm -hmm. and the achievements from Mario, it's still a fun game, right? It, it, it yeah. you know, you don't, you know, even if you said, oh, you don't actually get a new life for hundred coins, it just looks nice. People still play that game. Whereas yeah. with a lot of gamification, if you removed all the points and badges, people would be like, well, this just is boring because it's just still exactly the same work that I was doing before. Um, right, and so that is a difference. That's um, going back to Duolingo. That's one of the things that um, irks me the most because I actually do enjoy that having a street counter and some of the other other elements keep me working on learning a language in a way that I might not if it wasn't there. But it has a system of gems, and the main thing that you can spend the gems on is getting like time extensions for the time challenges. And I am perpetually annoyed by the time challenges because they are so 
mistimed. Like it's not <laughs> possible to complete them in the time it's giving you. It's designed for you to need these time extensions in order to win. And what's the easier way to get the time extensions? To pay extra money. So it's just yeah. very clearly a cash grab, which uh, I think is one of those moments where they sort of show their uh, their true face. But and, and what has this got to do with learning a language? I mean, right. you know, like I mean, you you sort of get to this level of complexity where it's like, well, what, what are we trying to do here again? Learn French? I, I forgot. You know. Um, mm-hmm. So yeah. And that is something that I'm so curious about because I lived in New York for quite a long time and I started to notice all of these games that people were playing on their smartphones on the subway. And a lot of these games are kind of endless. It's not like a Zelda game where there's a story and you beat it, but it's something like Temple Runner or Candy Crush where what is it about these games where people just get lost and just playing them endlessly because there's something that feels soothing or addictive are you i mean you know uh one of the things that well i i think in some of these games some of these games people call them time wasters right which mm-hmm. I, I i don't i don't think it, that is necessarily even used as a kind of pejorative term right yeah. i've played time waster games and these are almost like fidget toys they're just like well i'm just gonna like try try and like occupy part of my brain by by um bouncing this ball around or whatever and i'm gonna listen to podcasts at the same time and they're not even necessarily conventional games like temple run or whatever but then then you do have games which are which have this sort of a compulsion leap to them where you know and and the compulsion leap is basically you know in a game where where you have some activity and if you do it well or you just do a lot of it then you unlock a new skill or you unlock a new level and that allows you to do new things that uh you can then use to unlock new things basically to new new, new abilities um and i think that that can be done in interesting ways but again a lot of these games are designed to be endless because then they can just monetize you better right mm-hmm. um I, I i think that a lot of game designers uh if they weren't if they didn't have to care about money right then they would probably just be like well i'm just going to design a new game and people can enjoy it for five hours or ten hours but i don't really want to work on it for like five years so i'm just going to make yeah. the game and then and now i'll just go and do something else and i want them to play my new game now i don't really want them to play my old game for 10 years right and so but of course, you know, people, well, you know, the, the the motivation is to make more money. And so therefore the motivation is to try and try and, you know, get uh, hook people for as, as long as possible. Yeah. And to get all the sort of microtransactions of I want the special yeah. little thing that I can just pay a dollar ninety nine for right now and move forward. I mean, f- yeah, I mean fundamentally the the way that those I mean they they're also called like hyper casual games um yeah so so not just casual games like candy crush but hyper casual games are ones where you can play them in like five seconds or 10 seconds or something and you know the goal there is to usually um uh just get people playing as long as possible because you monetize by by showing them adverts um right. and uh you know the scale of these games is such that uh you know if you get millions of people playing which is certainly possible then then uh, you don't need to make that much money from each person. Um, right. Yeah. So let's go beyond some of the things that people would recognize as games. And I, I love that you included uh, some of these real-world elements like social credit scores or even the mm. um, sort of unofficial ARG of QAnon. Um, <laughs> how do these... How do you see these gamification elements kind of breaking out into the quote-unquote real world and changing the way that we are operating sometimes without our our awareness or intent well you know i i I think that the i you know to sort of take a step back i i think the gamification is basically um it represents a belief that behaviorism you know is Mm -hmm. a true representation of human motivation and which is to say you can get people to do things by punishing punishing them or rewarding them and that's really the only way of doing it and so what is a good way to enact uh, behaviorism? It's gamification. And so in the case of China, um, you know, this idea of a social credit score in the case of the US, you know, sort of like financial credit score or, or you know, class dojo or whatever, you know, this is, this is just, 
an easy tactic for for people to use to deploy. Um, but I think that it's not, you know, that, that makes it sound kind of like cynical, like people like, haha, this is a way to control people. I think that if you are like 30 years old or 40 years old, I mean, you've grown up with games your entire life. This is just a way in which you think about the world. It is it is probably the thing you've spent the most time on in terms of entertainment other than like movies and maybe more than movies and, mm-hmm. and, and TV shows. And so it's not really surprising, right, that people who've grown up on video games would come to think, well, you know, trying to trying to find a house, trying to like, do this or that, trying to encourage people to do this or that is like a game in the sense that if you went back 100 years ago, we would have a different metaphor for how the world worked. So right. that is how it has spread everywhere because people just see everything like a game now. Um, you know, and that's, it's become the dominant metaphor for the world. You know, and, and I think it's also a useful way of thinking about the world. I don't think it's a, you know, it's a bad thing. So, for instance... Um, during uh, the Hong Kong, you know, protests, uh, a lot of the young protesters created this manual uh, on how to kind of resist, and they described activities as different kind of role-playing game classes. So, you know, you right. could enroll in, in like the fire class, uh, you could enroll in the medic class, all that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. And in that case, that's kind of enlightening. That's kind of like a helpful yeah. way of because because they said, oh, and you can also multi-class. You can be a medic, and mm. you can be you know this other thing, and this is your role. And I think that that gives structure to to people to help them understand something that they don't understand using terms that they are familiar with. And so that's a case where yeah. it's like, I don't think it's a bad thing to to, to always see the, the the world as a game. Yeah, I think that's a really great point because I think in a situation like that, it helps clarify. If you imagine just being in a protest and suddenly there's tear gas getting fired, you're overwhelmed, and what do I do? How can I help? Whereas if you thought coming into the situation, my role is medic. I'm supposed to find people that have been tear gassed and help them flush out their eyes, and I've got a clear goal, a clear strategy, and suddenly when things are going haywire, I know what I'm doing rather than looking for direction. Yeah, and, and you'll be like, well, I, I know I played a game like this and the medic is not you know equipped. They're not, they don't have the skills to like, do this. Their job in order to win the game is to, to do the role that is fulfilled to them. You know? And you could yeah. sort of go into whether that makes sense, but that, that certainly, I think it does help people. And then I think the the somewhat darker flip side of this is for people who in life feel overwhelmed by a deluge of information and feel like they don't really have um, influence or power or status, QAnon has been something that has supplied that. I'm not just wasting time on the internet. I'm solving puzzles and I'm uncovering things that make me a good guy and other people bad guys. Um can you talk a little bit more about how QAnon um, has a lot of similarities with an alternate reality game? Yeah, I mean, you know, this all started because I noticed that people who are into QAnon, I mean, they still say this now, they'll say, oh, I've done my research. This is why right. I believe, yeah. you know, 5G is bad or whatever, like, you know, any any kind of QAnon thing. And they say, I've done my research. Have you done your research? Because if you had, then you'd also agree. And I'm like, what are you, yeah. what, like, what research? Did you go to, the, you know, like, did you, like, write a paper i don't understand yeah. and then i realized <laughs> that, that it, i mean you know for a lot of people q on on or not research consists of typing something into google and pressing enter right mm-hmm. or, or do or searching tiktok and i realized that um it's more satisfying and it's more interesting and it's more exciting for someone to believe that they've discovered this kind of secret of this mm-hmm. mystery of how the world works by actively searching for videos and for blog posts and for 4chan posts yeah. rather than hearing about it on Fox News or on the radio. Like it's more it's more interesting. And even though it's kind you would think that like surely it would be more effective to listen to a coherent a more coherent story delivered by mm-hmm. some sort of uh, you know, radio outlet, it's actually more more satisfying for people to think that they've done something themselves, that they worked it out mm. themselves um, rather than someone giving it to them. And that reminded me of how alternate reality games are designed, which are games that take place of the real world and online. So an alternate reality game might uh, involve 
getting a phone call or getting something in the mail, but also searching for websites and, you know, uh, emailing people and, and so on. And so they're often quite difficult games to get into. You know, they're not just like a console game or, or a mobile game where, where it's really easy and, and you can understand how to get into it. Alternate reality games often have this kind of very obscure way in. But when you're in, it just feels very exciting and very satisfying because often some of the puzzles are so difficult that they require a lot of people to solve together. And right. so uh, you feel useful in a way you know, you feel useful and helpful to the community, even if you're just speculating about what a solution might be in a way that I think is very different from, I'm not saying better, but just very different from playing another kind of game where you kind of feel it's all been handed to you. So I think QAnon gives you that kind of satisfaction too. Yeah, I think that our culture, the internet has allowed for a lot more interaction. And so instead of just watching a TV show, there's now the secondary act of sharing theories and reactions and arguing on Twitter or Reddit and having some sort of participation. And it makes me think about, um, you know, the, the journalism phrase gathering string, which is like, you don't have a story yet, but you're going and you're talking to people and you're kind of putting together the different pieces and seeing, is there a story here? And if I have an afternoon and I have no specific goal. I'm going to go to the same websites I always go to. I'm going to kind of just browse aimlessly. Whereas if I'm doing a podcast about a specific topic, suddenly I've got a million tabs open and I'm saving links and I'm copying mm. things that are interesting. And I think that ultimately leads to a podcast episode. So there's some sort of resolution. But I can see how the conspiracy is that game um, without a resolution. You don't beat zelda and feel like you're done and then you say maybe i should go outside and take a walk for a bit <laughs> you're in the candy crush version where there's always another dopamine hit of continuing to do a little bit more research finding another youtube video yeah and and you know i i think there there are you know there are ways to you know channel these and there are different ways to channel these energies where yeah. you know I, I you know people talk about editing wikipedia as a bit like you know a game or like yeah. as you can imagine it's sort of endless you can you can just be like well i'm just going to keep on improving this article i'm going to find new articles to do i'm going to organize a bit more except in this case it's probably a much more socially um you know useful activity <laughs> you know mm -hmm. um than it yeah. is to like be be into q and all yeah. And I think there's the whole behind the scenes that normal Wikipedia users don't see where it's the, you know, record of edits and knowing it's kind of like having your initials at the uh, on the pinball game at the local bar. You're like, that's yeah. me. I'm number three. Everyone's going to see that they, you know, we like to have that recognition, even if it's in a kind of yeah. weird abstract yeah. form. Well, let's switch gears and talk about some of the more positive elements of gamification, because I think the dystopian trends can be a little bit upsetting, but what are some of the other games or elements of gamification that you're personally excited about or see um, really coming together nicely or eloquently? Well, you know, I, I think the nice forms of gamification are ones where they are helping you do something that you already wanted to do, but you're having difficulty fulfilling mm. because maybe they're just hard things to do or or you know you, you don't really feel motivated so obviously zombies run the game that i make is mm. is designed to help uh encourage people to run more because running for, for beginners is pretty boring and it's a bit painful but then there's also games like rocksmith that helps you um learn the guitar and it gamifies mm. that and uh, it's not very heavily gamified at all, but it just makes it a bit more interactive and a bit more satisfying than just playing the same song over like 50 times. You, mm -hmm. you can see yourself improving. Um, you know, there are educational games like uh, Kerbal Space Program, which I think is fascinating. It's kind of like you can build rockets, you can launch these creatures into space, but it's also really accurate physics uh, mm -hmm. simulation. I, I think one of the the most interesting forms of gamification, which I don't even know was designed deliberately, was this uh, mega game which I played called Watch the Skies, which mm -hmm. was this sort of massively multiplayer board game. It took place over like eight hours uh, in a in a big hall, and it had about 150 people, and it was a bit of a kind of cross between like a you know Dungeons and Dragons and and a, and Risk. 
and uh, there were all these different, you know, sides to it. And yeah. me and my friend got assigned to be uh, reporters. Um, and and our job was not to represent any kind of country or any faction, but just to go and write a newspaper, <laughs> you know, about about what was going on in the game every thirty minutes. And I was kind of annoyed at first because I was like, "How come I don't get to do the fun stuff?" And then I realized, "Oh wow! Like, you know, this is kind of a blast actually writing a news. You know, I get to like write a newspaper like every mm-hmm. thirty minutes, and I'm I'm learning about how to do double sourcing, and I'm learning about how to kind of like put this out quickly, and and sort of like you know figure out deadlines." And I remember thinking at the end, I was like, "This would be a really great way to give." journalism students like a taste mm-hmm. of what it's like to actually report um you're compressing the uh experience of writing eight issues of a newspaper down to eight hours instead of eight weeks or you know eight months and yeah. um you know it's not perfect you're not going to learn how to go write a five thousand word essay you know in in this kind of environment but you are going to learn certain things absolutely you know people are trying to lie to you you know <laughs> that sort of thing yeah. Well, I think in in that example, you're creating almost like a simulation of the thing. And by that, you're stripping yeah. out some of the complexity of the timescale. Instead of global politics with nations, you have 80 yeah. people in a gymnasium. Instead of decades, you, you're playing it in an afternoon. You know, you've, you've kind of straightened things out. But one of the things that was so striking to me in the book was you were talking about the control systems that are put in place to monitor truckers. But mm. then you mentioned that one of the most popular simulations is a game that very accurately recreates trucking and truckers play it, which yeah. is just like, I can't imagine getting home after, you know, six days of being on the road and saying, I want to fire up my PC and, and play some simulated trucking. But what is, what do you think is the appeal in that? Well, I mean, you know, uh, pilots play flight, flight, flight simulators yeah. and farmers play farm simulators. I mean, I think that, that one would hope that that uh, a trucker, even if they have to endure a lot of uh, annoyances and trouble mm-hmm. during their jobs, hopefully they actually enjoy or find it satisfying to do like the main part of their job. And so it's not really surprising to me that they'd be like, oh, now I can go and do this without any of the annoyances, you know, without right. filling in timesheets, without, uh, you know, having to like, deal with, you know, late loads or, or whatever. And I think similarly, you know, for, for pilots, uh, maybe they find the job a drag now, but they probably still love uh, part of it. And, you know, especially if you're using it on a great computer or on VR or something like that, you know, I can I can totally see the appeal. Yeah. Um, are there things that you gamify in your life just for yourself? Well, you know, I used to do it with running, um, mm-hmm. you know, where I, I would sort of try and keep, keep running faster. Um, I mean, I don't, Gamify, hmm. Well, there there are things that I sort of try to optimize in a way that that is probably unhealthy, <laughs> you know. Like so, so like I, you know, like um, listen to as many podcasts as I can or whatever, <laughs> you know. Like <laughs> yes, well, everyone I, should have that game. Well, yes, do it, everybody. <laughs> you know, actually, I I did think of one thing where like it's just a game for me, which is like, oh, how how can I skip adverts and a podcast? um really effectively so as soon as it starts i go and like you know uh i, I know exactly how long it's going to last for and i can go and go go past that mm-hmm. it's a little yeah. little thing i play myself <laughs> it makes me think of like uh i feel like a lot of people have the game they played as a kid where they imagine someone running alongside the car and you know jumping over the various obstacles or mm-hmm. things where it's just uh a mental game but i was curious because i i made me, reading the book made me think a lot about patterns I have of creating some sort of system for here's how I'm going to give myself points for getting this thing done. And I'm, you know, going to make myself more productive. And the ones that a lot of them fall by the wayside, where it's an additional task, rather than simplifying or making the main task more fun. I'm now trying to like, do the thing and then go log it in a journal. And eventually, it's like, Oh, that's a hassle. I'll just (laughs) strip it back. You know, I know people who do that. And who who like that? And I talk about that in the book a bit. Um, I I never it doesn't work on me. I've got to yeah. say, like I, I mean, like I, I or, or I sort of know it will work for a while, and then I'll just get mm. annoyed by it. So I just do. Right. I I just try and make myself like understand the need to, you know, like people try and gamify doing chores, 
And so mm-hmm. I'll give myself 15 points for washing the dishes and 20 points yeah. for emptying the bins. And I'm like, I, for me, I'm just a little bit like, I just know we've got to do this. I'm just going to go and do it. <laughs> um, you know, and I'm going to feel, <laughs> I'm going to feel proud of myself for having done it rather than kind of seeing it as, as some sort of like horrible thing to be endured, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Or the alternate of I didn't do it. And now I didn't give myself the imaginary points and the only scorekeeper is me. So right. it becomes a little bit, uh, right. a little bit irrelevant, easy to cheat when you're both the, uh, the dungeon master and the sole player. Exactly. Yeah. Are there any games that you see or trends in gaming that you feel particularly, uh, excited or optimistic about? I mean, you know, I think the thing that is most exciting for me about games as an art form is just how varied they are. I mean, mm-hmm. it's, I, I really think, you know, games are the most vibrant, the most imaginative form of art, hands down, right now. Yeah. I mean, you know, you know, I love reading books, I love watching TV, I like watching movies, but, you know, and there's a lot of imagination in them. But games, I mean, you can have a game that lasts for like five seconds, you can have a game that lasts for 500 days, you can have games that are free, games that cost $1,000, you've got games that like are about you know, painting houses, big games about like running a restaurant. I mean, they're just games about everything. It's so cool. I mean, it's mm-hmm. so exciting that like it's so easy and so cheap to make a game now. If if you want to make a simple one, you can go and distribute it to everyone in the world, you know, on online. It really is exciting. And so, you know, I, I wouldn't talk about one specific thing. I just say like and anything you can imagine, there's probably a game for that. And and that's so exciting. Yeah. And I think what's interesting about the positive elements of gamification is it's extending that game to what I would call the larger game. So as an example, you could have a game like Settlers of Catan and you could you could have the same mechanics of that without having it be wheat and sheep. It could be, do you have any blue? I'll trade you a green. Like, right. you know, those elements are kind of irrelevant. But then the game is having fun with your friends playing Settlers of Catan. The game is not just winning it unless you're playing in tournaments or there's a different game you're playing, but it's having people you like over to your house to have an evening where the game creates structure and drama and excitement. And I think as we learn to kind of see the world in that lens with some of the helpful things of games... um, it kind of pulls the mask off stuff too, you know? Am I playing this game because it's fun for me or am I actually playing my boss's game, which is figure out how to get me to work harder <laughs> and do I do I want to play that game? Exactly, yeah, yeah. What is a little bit of this, uh, this idea that you think listeners can bring into their own lives? What's something small that they could do to um, maybe gamify something or, or just think about um, gamification in a different way? I think people should be aware of gamification in their lives. You know, if you mm-hmm. have an Apple Watch, if you have an iPhone, if you, you know, uh, use Duolingo, then you're being exposed to gamification and you should enjoy the things that you like about it and you should turn off the things or just choose Ignore, not to care yeah. about the things that, that you don't like about it. Um, I don't know. I'm not here to go and sell gamification, so I'm not going to do that. <laughs> like, I, I don't actually think that people should go out and gamify their lives, you know, because I think most of the gamification out there is not very good. And so mm-hmm. I would struggle to find good examples of everything, to be perfectly honest. I, I think if you if you find something that works for you, then that's brilliant. Um, but you should just play good games. Play, play good board games and video games. What are some games you'd recommend? Well, I really enjoyed uh, a mystery sort of detective game called Return of the Obra Dinn, which is on PC and Mac and Switch and consoles. It is just this really incredibly satisfying uh, game of deduction where you feel like a genius when you when you figure it out, and it's mm. just such a fun thing. Um, yeah, there was a game called Citizen Sleeper, which I really enjoyed, which was a sort of um, really beautiful uh story really uh about yeah. about um trying to survive on, on a space station um yeah i don't know that's that you know those are two games i played recently wonderful and i think your point is really valid that the goal here and the goal that i had in this conversation was definitely not um how do we gamify everything but one of the things that i appreciated in your book is you talk about capitalism you talk about the other hidden motivations and things and i think that is one of the most valuable things um 
Mario being this great example of, you know, if we find ourselves chasing coins, taking that moment to ask, is that something that we enjoy in this game or is that something that we're doing because uh, it was sort of programmed in and we haven't questioned it? Yeah, absolutely. Adrian, thank you so much. Thank you. For more of Adrian's work, visit mssv.net where you can read his blogs on gaming and so much more, as well as check out his new book, You've Been Played, which I enjoyed so much. It was such a fun, delightful, easy read. And aside from the absolute horror of working in an Amazon factory that's trying to make you play imaginary games, um, I found it to be very inspiring and thought-provoking. So check that out. And if you want to help me with my game of being the world's number one wizard, you can go to patreon.com slash this podcast is a ritual where your token offering card, I don't know, I'm losing the game metaphor here. But anyways, if you give me some cold, hard, imaginary cash, uh, you get bonus content, DJ mixes, and all kinds of other stuff uh, behind the scenes of this podcast is a ritual. So help make our magic, make the world a slightly better place. So once again, that is patreon.com slash this podcast is a ritual. Because this world is a game. And if we're going to be players, we might as well play by our own rules. <laughs>